Well, hello, everybody. This is Randy Wooten, CEO of Maxio. You've joined us for SaaS Expert Voices, where we bring the experts from all around SaaS to join and talk about what's going on today and what they see going on tomorrow. So I'm really honored to have Matthew May join us, who I've known for a couple of years now. He's had a great experience primarily in the audit space where he started off at Ernst & Young for a while and then went to Cherry Beckert. Um, he is now president of Acuity uh, and has a YouTube video, uh, the tech CPA, and is CEO of Verify IQ as well. So Matthew, welcome. And wow, you got a lot going on. I have a couple of things going on, so it's nice to be here. So, <laughs> so maybe let's talk a little bit about the uh, YouTube video. I got a chance to watch some of those. How, how have you developed that as a, a channel and what was the inspiration for it? And um, what, what are you doing with it these days? Yeah, the inspiration for YouTube was um, we saw that search was uh, moving from kind of text-based to video. The more people are consuming and searching on YouTube, it's passing Google. Uh, or at one point, I think it, I believe YouTube passed Google as a search engine. Um, so the YouTube channel was uh, my attempt to stay relevant. So we started with uh, a podcast ourselves of like having it on the YouTube channel that that moved into kind of short form video. And we also have shorts uh, on video that we try to maximize trying to leverage TikTok. Mainly, it's a uh, a skill. I'm just trying to learn and exercise so that if we can monetize it, um, that, that we can. We also have an e-commerce channel for, for our e-commerce vertical that's way more successful as 10,000 subscribers of talking about accounting for e-commerce. So we're using that channel as a model uh, in the SaaS space to try to replicate kind of some of that content expertise and uh, just be helpful in the domain. And what are some of the lessons you've learned? I mean, we just kicked off this podcast. It sounds like you're way down the path in terms of taking the podcast and turning into YouTube and optimizing for search. What are some of the lessons learned in terms of uh, publishing your own content, either because um, you also have a blog as well, um, across those different channels? Consistency is the single most important thing. So that's the number one lesson. The second lesson we learned is authenticity can't be duplicated. Uh, so you have to, even if somebody's successful in something, you don't just be a copycat, make it your own. Uh, you have to stay authentic to your own personality, your own brand, things like that. So those are probably top two, number one A and number one B maybe even. Great. And then consistency, you mean just regular consistent publication, like every yeah. week it's if coming you're do out. It, so. Do it every month, every week, yeah. every day, yeah. like whichever one you go to, like it, it even, it compounds on it. Um, I see that with all the successful podcasts, content creators I've looked at, all the video creators, their key is consistency. They have yeah. a cadence and they follow it and they don't miss and their followers appreciate that. Yeah. And I think that uh, your point about authenticity also is spot on in terms of, and you got a lot of authenticity on your YouTube channel. So I recommend for folks that <laughs> are, are looking to learn more about accounting. Um, so yeah, so let's shift the conversation. Obviously, SaaS Experts is uh, focused on broadly on the SaaS industry, but primarily focused on the evolution of the role of the CFO and the potential transformation of the office of the CFO. And in your role as an, an audit and being a coach and an advisor for many CEOs, especially in the tech space, I mean, you are the tech CPA, what are you seeing as played out over the last couple of years in terms of how finance folks think about their function or their role? Uh, well, I, the macro trend I see is the CFO kind of merging towards the COO role in many cases. Uh, I, I attribute that primarily to tech. Right. So the technology is moving fast 
forward in in so many ways that that the finance function uh, is being automated out from under a lot of people in a lot of ways. So that that organization from just a number of people perspective is shrinking and shrinking in every organization that I've seen. And that's kind of gone to this other trend to where the CFO has kind of expanded to fill the space as technology's improved and just the accounting and finance function. Um, So that's probably the biggest macro trend I see. uh, And I don't see it slowing down anytime soon. Great. That's one of the things we talk about in terms of the the revolution in the the office of the CFO. Part of the reason I came to join Maxio, having spent 20, 25 years in go-to-market tech, was we saw workflow automation transform the way that marketers did their roles. And similarly with sales and sales enablement. And the CFO, the office of the CFO, had seemed more resistant to embracing technology. And I think it came down to a couple things. One, uh, they don't like to spend money. Uh, number two is it feels like most CFOs come up through the accounting track and, and are very focused on dotting I's and crossing T's and they want their Excel model that they've built and you can pry their Excel from their cold dead hands, right? Like it's, they want to own it and they want to keep a, a, a silo of the financial tech so that they can control the insights and they can control the things that are published. Cause at the end of the day, it's their, their rear on the line when they're signing the financial statements. It, it, what do you think are the, when you say technology is revolutionizing the office of the CFO, the key pieces of technology that are enabling them to have more capacity to step into the COO role? Well, I think uh, it starts with the general ledgers, right? Like the de- general ledgers back when I started, you know, people were 10 keying in um, mm. the journal entries, the transactions and stuff like that. That's almost every general ledger now consumes information straight from the bank, straight from the transaction level. So just like from from usually it starts in accounting, it seems to have started from the bottom up, right? Transactional mm-hmm. level um, seems to be being automated. Uh, Data is getting richer. Uh, that's That's been a big, huge problem preventing technology from moving forward. A lot of ways is just the data that they, if, if you start from where the information is consumed, you know, and that's at the bank mm-hmm. level, the U S banking system is a very big obstacle. If you're trying to do this at scale, um, you know, we have 600 clients. We're trying to do this for at the same time. Right. So they, you can imagine in the U S as opposed to like Australia or New Zealand, where there's one or two or three banks, you know, the U.S. banking system is so diverse. So the data set that we have mm. that we're consuming is is also so diverse that that it's been hard to it's been slower in the U.S., I feel like, to adopt this technology change because the data is so much more diverse. Um, but that said, uh, we're seeing like those obstacles starting to be overcome in the last three to five years toward data is more consistent. Technology is able to kind of move the needle on that transaction level. That does a lot of things at the office of the CFO, right? You don't have entry level jobs anymore, right? Right. So right. you have to change your whole training system, right. right? Change who you recruit, change who starts with you. I think yep. people talk about this um, problem with you know not having staff in the U.S. or this this dearth of talent. One of the problems is like in Big Four, for example, where I grew up, in, it wasn't Big Four, <laughs> but it was uh, it was you know. The, the number shrinks every year. I just, uh, you know, right. I'll call it's just it more consolidation, so, right? <laughs> but um, like they started offshoring a lot of the skills, you know, right. for the tra- that we used to, but that was the training system they used to have. So mm. I think there's a training problem at Big mm-hmm. Four and in accounting because of technology. Accountants are lazy. They used to 
just rely on that grunt work for us to hmm. learn the business when I oh, was growing interesting. up. Yeah. So, so the office of CFO has changed in that there's this excuse that there's no talent there, but really right. what there is, is there's just a harder training problem that people haven't solved yet. Right. Um, yeah. So that's so, super interesting. Cause I, we, I think we may have been at the AICPA meeting once, which is the American Inter I, in just, in, in, I don't know, uh, CPA Association. And it was the big topic that there was not enough talent in accounting. And I think what you've identified is really two dimensions. One is because of the ability to automate the data collection and the representation and the actual journal entry that is resulted in a, people not having the training that, that they need to sort of figure out how do you do the ledger, right? How do you think about right. credits and debits? So they're there's once you get in, you don't have the training. But what do you think about this idea? Just fewer people are going into accounting uh, writ large. Do you think that's going to be offset because of the efficiency gains we get from technology? Or do you think there's a in addition to a training problem, a recruiting problem? And how does that get how do CFOs of the future need to think about that? Well, I, I think that's only if you're U.S. centric. If you're ah. using a U.S. centric lens, that may be a true statement. Right. If you're a CFO and you have a U.S. centric lens, you have a different problem. <laughs> so, I mean, we have a global workforce, even at my, we're only 150 people and mm -hmm. 46 of us are internationally based now. And mm -hmm. we don't have any problems recruiting people. Got right. It. Yeah. So if you are U.S. centric, I will give you that. And I could see how the AICPA, which is American Institute of Certified Public Accounts, American Institute, I couldn't think care, of it, right. care about that because they're <laughs> yeah. very U.S. centric oh, in in wow. their yeah. lens. Yeah, but I think the office of the CFO has to be more broad, broad, broadly thinking. Because I think yeah. if you're even a hundred percent company and you're not thinking about a globalized workforce, I think you're going to have lots of other problems in your company, regardless, because you're not thinking it the right way. And I think you're spot, that's super interesting. I think you're spot on. I just literally came back from the Manila in the Philippines where I was at a conference speaking for a company called Doxa, Doxa Talent. And uh, they provide uh, folks primarily in the Philippines, but also in Vietnam and Colombia. And they're looking at Kenya and Africa. And it's they their, their tagline is borderless talent. And this idea that we're all living in a world where there's going to be... Uh, capacity and capability that we can access to in, in large part due to the technology as well. Like you have Zoom and you have Google Docs and you have all these things where people can can work on it. So that's an interesting point. I think you're spot on. I hadn't thought about that in terms of the lens of trying to get accountants in the US in the in the roles. So your global staffing is one of these things that's transforming the function. So your ability to acquire talent or go out and hire talent. And then I think the other point you were making was train the talent. So the ones either you you have in the Philippines, for example, or other areas, how do you incorporate them into the teams? And then the CFO moving into the role or into the office of the COO, one of the things we've chatted about internally is this idea of the CFO moving from the back office to the front office, moving from being the compliance person, the one that gets the financial statements out, to being the one that actually can help inform go-to-market strategies. How, how, is it, how have you seen that played out for your clients, those that uh, either you're doing that strategic advisory services for, or as they fleet up a CFO, you're augmenting that capacity and capability that how have you seen the finance function have to step more into that advisory strategic partnership? I mean, the way we actually execute our business model, just uh, we have 11 CFOs on staff, like 
they don't they have to be forward focused. The way we explain their job to our, our clients and who I think their job should be explained is they're they're they should be ninety percent of their job should be forward focused, strategy focused. They should be looking in the past. If you have somebody looking at the back in the rearview mirror, that should be a controller or like a somebody that's really like dealing with compliance and and thinking about yeah. that. So I think that's a macro uh, that that's appropriate. I think one of the struggles people have because technology is moving so fast is they're needing less and less of that person's time because to be focused on accounting and finance. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we're seeing this, this move. One of the trends we see is the traditional way that finance, like, like CFOs used to like help companies was like, I call it translating accounting into kind of like entrepreneur. Right. Right. (laughs) Like, so they spend a lot of time with a balance sheet and an income statement, like in helping a CEO understand what that was and understand mm-hmm. what those numbers meant, right? The problem now is like, first of all, CEOs are learning that faster. Like that's less of a hurdle, I think. Right. Um, I think especially at certain levels, once you get into the mid-market, certainly those people have that skill set where they can look at a financial statement and understand it relatively quickly in the SMB market, like below that, like there's definitely that, that hole. A lot of my team spends a lot of my time still doing that because those people haven't gotten there. But in the mid market, like when you think of like the Maxio clients to me and the people that have kind of passed that first stage, those CEOs are relatively savvy. Yeah. Now the, the CFO have the challenge now of moving to this historical monthly data, which is kind of like a seeing what happened right. to kind of more of a KPI mindset where you're looking at a, 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 from a monthly number, you're looking at more of a weekly number and you're trying to identify kind of a different set of data that is a, like a red flag of something you need to change. So when you get to the monthly number, it's not bad, right? Yeah. Which is not revenue, right? That's, further up the funnel if you just think of like in the marketing sales world like you don't worry about sales at the end of the month you worry about sales like you got to know when it's off track when the number of meetings is wrong or something like that right or if if the funnel's wrong and then you got to go back to marketing and say fill the funnel you know what i mean what's the action right uh and it's a totally different data set and it takes and it's a little bit uncomfortable for cfos that have been in the business a long time because they're used to they came up when they had to translate the accounting for you. Yeah. Now they're now they're going back and getting into operations and and, and figuring other other stuff out. There's a, a lot to unpack there. Just uh, to come back a little bit, where do you find with all you have 600 clients, you have 11 CFOs on staff, so you have a broad breadth of of client base. Where do you find that inflection point usually for that first time CEO when they start to have some? Like, fluency in accounting is it like 10 million dollars series a series b or no is there... it, it, t- it tends to be closer to three to five million in okay. revenue we're yep. starting to see it where they're like really starting to translate starting to understand that if yep. you think about like somebody that's had to go through a series a raise <laughs> those yeah. are where those are like they 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 really have to understand the drivers in their financial statements and if you think of this from a modeling exercise right it's yes. like once you 
once you see financials and present financials versus build a model and you see what drives yeah. it, this yeah. is shift I'm talking about. Yeah. Right. No, I think spot on. I, that's what I was going to suggest was, does it come when you, you take your first professional money? Because you're going toe to toe with professional investors that all they do is build models and pattern match. And if you're a CEO, you're, you're always, well, at that stage, you may not even have a CFO with you. You may have an outsourced CFO. CPA who's acting as your advisor who could be in those meetings with you. But at the end of the day, you're the one raising the money. You got to be able to have those conversations with those potential investors. And that means you have to have some literacy in uh, accounting. That's right. So, yeah. The other thing I think uh, it's this distinction you're drawing between the historical look back, the lagging indicators, and then the leading indicators, which I, I don't know if the distinction is valid in terms of kind of financial metrics versus operating metrics. So you are talking about revenue as being what I would describe it fall in the bucket of the rev, uh, financial metrics from the financial statements. But the operating metrics that you were describing in terms I was just doing our marketing funnel report. And we were looking at uh, marketing attribution in terms of how many S sales accepted opportunities were we having come in from different channels and what did it look like from the inbound versus uh, the BDR. And uh, the CFO was right there. The CFO yeah, the was right better there. Your, the better your CFO is, the less they talk to you about financial statements and the more they talk to you about operating metrics. Yeah, this is what, spot on. what I think most CEOs would say. <laughs> yeah. And I think you know, this is where I, the, the, the quick advertisement for Maxio, where it changed my life. So I've been a three-time CEO. Second time I was at a company, Percolate, which is about a $30 million company. And we didn't have SaaS optics at the time. And I just remember this, this rhythm that my CFO and I were in, where the CFO would spend the first eight to 10 days trying to close the books. So just get the financial statements done, get the uh, P&L, cash, et cetera. And then we would start to look at the Excel model and try to figure out what the heck happened <laughs> in terms of customers and go to market engine and churn. And we'd spend you know, another eight to 10 days working through the Excel model and, and you know, someone would, uh, would fat finger a cell and it'd all be off. And then we have to start over. Um, but when we took on SAS optics, you could press a button after the effectively press a button on day two and you had your ARR and your revenue. Uh, and it just changed the types of conversations I was having with my CFO. Like we could spend a large part of the month talking about, hey, what's happened, especially at the end of the quarter or something along those lines. So in your practice, when you're working with your clients, what sort of do you have a a board pack that you help put together? Or do you have a regular meeting that you're doing on a monthly or quarterly basis to to help frame the business for your clients? Yeah, depending on the service level people have, like ah. some are like we, we have a, a substantial number of our clients are sub one million in revenue. So we right. have to kind of modify this. But for our larger clients, say in the three million revenue range, like the goal would be to have at a minimum a monthly meeting where you're going through like the old financial statement, if that's what's happening with yeah. you. And then if you're if they're farther along, because you're kind of meeting them on this journey yeah. <laughs> that they're on you kind of meet them where they're if they're at the level where they're ready to get to the the operating metric side then that's that's tends to be more of like a a weekly uh engagement in meeting and there's you know tools like maxio uh reporting tools that are specialists like sift or giraffe we use uh in in the same vein uh with regard to different pieces of that puzzle so that was going be the question i was going to ask is so and thinking about enabling that capability so you can do that at scale for your clients 
what are some of the other technologies that you've, other than Maxio, that you've found that you like and that you would recommend for people to adopt? Yeah, I mean, a couple of them that that uh, we like from, from just a KPI, just a straight KPI basis is like SIFT from a modeling basis, something that's a little more uh, robust is uh, a tool called Giraffe. If you're yeah. thinking about modeling, one that we're using internally right now, internally, I can just tell you it's great. It's a tool called 90 which is for companies that have adopted EOS, which is the entrepreneur's oh. operating system. And yeah. it, it allows you to track by team the top you know, s- top KPIs by week. Um, that's really mm-hmm. shifted my mindset uh, in, in, in ways of thinking. As I'm running this business, like it's gotten to be a big business, 150 people. Like yeah. we have teams, you know, that, that uh, people that, that I've not met yet and, and yeah. stuff like that. So you've got to keep, keep things going, but the KPIs are relatively consistent. But moving our firm, you know, the last 24 months has moved from reviewing financial statements to the predictive KPIs ourselves. Uh, and I think that's just a maturity level. Once you get to certain stages, uh, even accountants can mature, you know? Yeah, right. Uh, so I think absolutely, we talk about the monetization ecosystem and how you have these different components that you need to put together to get the most out of how you do your pricing and packaging and reporting and then informs your go-to-market strategy. Yeah. And a couple of components that you described, one, I would call it as a FP&A solution, giraffe fits in, fits in that, uh, forecaster basis, other ones that I think really fit under the FP&A function where you're doing right. that modeling and planning. Super helpful. I think um, we talk about tax, having tax plugged in. We use Avalara. There's another one, Anrock, out there that we find a lot of people use. Yeah, Anrock um, and Avalara are the top two. Yeah. No. And then uh, we're finding uh, an interesting, I love your perspective on CPQ systems. So CPQ historically has been something I would say runs up through sales op or what people describe as revenue ops. And it's a CFCRO decision to buy because uh, it's usually a salesperson that's using it. One of the things we found is CFOs are now influencing that decision in, in a way because they want to make sure the contract's sort of uh, order to cash, that the contract's accurate, that can ingest it from the CRM system into something like a Maxio or, or have it go into the other financial systems. What's your experience with companies at the size that you're working with embracing a CPQ system or is it they're mostly PLG and so they're not really, they don't have robust sales-led motions at the time? Well, a lot of the SaaS guys are, are, are using pretty simple CRMs to me. Um, yeah. Not simple necessarily, like Salesforce isn't simple, but you, right. you know, you got your major ones that, because they're doing some kind of funnel management on the marketing side, they're probably the most sophisticated of all the metrics in the marketing realm, right? Right. We yeah. have a HubSpot, you have a, you have a Salesforce that could yep. feed into uh, Maxio or whatever, like just so you can do the contract management from Maxio, yeah. right? Um, yeah. So I think those are the two primary ones we see in the system, like for in the SaaS world is using one of those two Salesforce or HubSpot and, and, and just getting the, the data from those, that funnel, that marketing funnel into their sales team. Uh, but uh, sales and marketing is... W- way farther ahead of yeah. every other group at these yeah. KPI functions than yeah. any other group throughout the organization. Um, yeah. And part of that is the nature of those group folks are yeah. like very aggressive. Part of that is the company's willing to invest more That's right. in the, that function because uh, they see that as growth as opposed yeah. to back office spend. Yeah. Um, but uh, the same concepts there, you can apply across the organization once you get kind of buy-in at the exec level, that that's an important thing to do. I, 
I think that's right. Having sold across all functions, I think you know the salesperson can bang their hand on the desk and say, "I I need this technology, or else I'm not going to hit my number." And everyone's like, "Okay, here, go ahead." Like they check. don't even they don't even ask. They just go buy it, and the <laughs> bill comes. Like, what are you? You're not. You're like, I've never seen a salesperson ask anything. So oh, yeah, I saw. Uh, <laughs> I'd be interested on a, a comment and then a question. Um, I saw a report recently that said companies that are less than 500 people have on average 170 internal software tools, spending something like $8 million a year and adding four to five applications a month. So you have this incredible proliferation of software use cases. And to your point, it's driven primarily because you have individuals with credit cards that can just uh, charge it, right? And it goes under the operating expense and there isn't a, a, a deal desk for purchasing. Um, when you get bigger, I think maybe IT inserts itself. Uh, one rule of thumb I've heard is companies should think about 2% of revenue going against internal software across all software, across all functions. Given your view of all the customers you work with, do you have a, a rule of thumb as you think about either in terms of number of applications or dollars spent on internal software? No, I I, I, I don't. I don't really think of the world that way. I tend to think ah. more by benchmark, by department. I don't know why. Right. That's, that's why my mind kind of works. Uh, yep. But uh, the, just to that point, though, I think the last uh, 12 to 18 months, I, we've started to see some app fatigue for the yeah. first time. Like yeah. We saw it like for a decade, uh, right. to your point, like these apps kept taking things. So one thing we are watching really closely right now is app fatigue and consolidation in the market with some some interesting things with Intuit kicking some of the built paper riders out of their platform, which was like an interesting thing that happened last yeah, year. Right. Um, with uh, Bill.com and Melio kind of being rejected from that platform. Um, oh, wow. So like, it's just a, it's something we're seeing now at the, we've heard it from users, but that there's app fatigue, but now we're starting to see it with some of the bigger players. Like, uh, a kind of like a a, a a consolidation or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, well, I think there's a, that's very different than than the last ten years to me. Absolutely, I think uh, a, a couple of points. One, is, so we just launched our end of year fiscal year twenty three Maxio Institute growth report, where we look because we have about fifteen billion dollars of billing and invoicing data data flowing across the platform, about twenty three hundred customers. And for this report, it took a lot of effort, manual work. We were able to associate specific industries to every single customer. So now we have an industry view. And one of the things that's interesting is we have a lot of marketing and sales companies who we had over the years, their growth rates were 40% in 2020 and 2021, and they're down at like 8% this year, 6%. So one of the ones where there's been enormous pullback has been on that discretionary spend in marketing and sales in particular. And I do think there is a limit in terms of when I was at sales, um, I was at Salesforce and then I was at Seismic Sales Enablement, company for a little while and we would think about well how much is a, a head of sales willing to pay in technology per seat for every ae right to get their body armor and their weapons you're like how much do you willing to outfit and that was what you were working for was a share of that uh piece and i think that has become less <laughs> over time in terms of what people are willing to pay oh but certainly yeah, so, and for sdrs too right yeah for bdrs and sdrs people are um, doing less and less, especially as email gets cracked down on, and um, we're starting to see some trends around that. That's kind of makes some people nervous, and yeah, but that just shifts money to marketing. Like, there's just fascinating stuff going on. It's like whack a mole if you're a CEO, yeah. right? You got to totally. stay on, on top of all the trends and and keep it keep keep things moving because you got to grow. 
it's it's a yes amen and and figuring out where do you allocate the marginal dollars for the return and how do you drive the efficient frontier like yeah totally so we were talking a little bit about one of the trends is this app fatigue this consolidation as we get the last couple of minutes of this interview what are some of the other trends that you're seeing um people think about or or starting to explore in the accounting space or in the office of the cfo writ large well we had um three people in the industry at our annual conference this year, all talking about how they're doing, uh, building AI into their products. And we didn't allow them to talk speculatively. We could, we only allowed them to talk about what was going to be in their products in 2024. So that was a really interesting conversation. You know, it, it ranged from a superficial kind of, kind of chat kind of feature to more substantial kind of content generation and more substantial kind of like activity <laughs> that that displaces accountants, which was mm-hmm. fascinating to me mm-hmm. to see how they're going to navigate like taking work away from from the accounting channel when a lot of these people depend on the accounting channel to to grow. Um, so those were the those are the that's the main thing I would say right. from a technology thing that almost everybody's yeah. walked. I mean, everybody was enamored with ChatGPT, but it's kind of like yeah. oh, it's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, t- having talked to some of the CROs at some of the larger, uh, uh, the sorry, the chief product officers at some of the larger players like Bill.com and Intuit, like there is something to really track there this year. Yeah, uh, and I think we'll see even in the or in the first half of this year, I think we'll see the leaders or uh, the people with stuff baked into their products start releasing some really cool features. Yeah, it's interesting in terms of the rich get richer, right? If you have a lot of resources and you can hire data scientists and you can and you have an enormous data set, then your ability to take advantage of something like uh, generative AI is going to be better than the small companies that have to uh, figure out how to how to apply it within their systems. Yeah, even the decision, like talking to them, how they thought through whether they build their own kind of building their own general generative language model or use one of the existing ones was a fascinating yeah. conversation and you you have some of them building their own at that with yeah. the most resources <laughs> you can yeah. imagine who that is and then you have other people who are using like partnerships with open ai and other other players out there uh to to build their tools which is fascinating as well yeah i do think that's the big difference i was the ceo of a company called rocket fuel which is a real ai company it was first gen we we're doing predictive ai in the marketing space and we built our own data centers because it wasn't uh, cost effective to use AWS at the time. And we had 23 data centers around the world, spent, had spent $200 million or something, had the, you know, the Cadillac version of all the servers. And it was like a huge DevOps team. It was wild. And then to think at the level of abstraction we are with AI, where you just pull it up on a website and get an enormous amount of power from uh, the models because of the open source, I, we've, I, we've entered a whole new age, obviously everyone's saying that. And so I think a couple of points, one is I would suggest everyone needs to be playing with it, even the CFOs, like mm-hmm. figure out and get comfortable with it. Number two is um, for their specific function is taking advantage of the tools and, and again, sort of playing with it. But like, how do you do, I did a presentation in the Philippines, all the art, was generated by AI. I had an agency do it with MidJourney, and the person who did it was super talented. But when you think about that, like that would have taken three weeks for an illustrator. I had this cool kind of retro Racer X type background, and it's original art generated by machine changes, transforms the way the agency creative department is going to work. So each function 
using AI differently. And then I think for the executive team, understanding what sort of data they have, what are the sort of questions that would be, they would want to address by introducing models and building the capability for it. Like we don't have any data scientists at, at Maxio right now. We have an enormous amount of data, but we're working with a partner who's coming in and helping us figure out our data strategy. Is it structured correctly? What could we do? And how could we layer in an intelligence layer on top of our product in addition to the, um, uh, the workflow automation that we offer? So I, I do think we're in a brave new world. Any other trends that you're seeing? So we've talked about kind of hiring, the need for training and rethinking the roles. We've talked about the app fatigue, the potential consolidation, the impact of AI. The international side. Um, no, those are the main things that we're tracking kind of this year. So Awesome. Well, let me, let me close with one thing. We mentioned in your intro that you're also CEO of a company called Verify IQ. You've yep. taken that over. You guys made an investment and then you, you took it over. So you're now uh, president of an, an audit firm, well, a client advisory services firm that's helping technology companies. But you're also running a company on both sides. What are the I'm uh, running a startup. It's a, yeah. it's crazy. What, is, and you can tell what does that what, feel like? What are you What are you learning on that? And what's what makes you better in your one role versus the other? Well, I mean, I think anytime you you're in an operational role, you understand like the kind of data that's really valuable to mm. decision making. Yep. So if you think about you know accountants sometimes, and I think CFOs have to think about this, right? Accountants sometimes think of their deliverable as the financial statements. One of the reasons I left audit was that, you know, w when I did the audit report, it was typically stale data. Some of the data was 18 yeah. months old, like we're delivering yeah. an audit report in yeah. March for January through yeah. December of last year, right? So some yeah. of that's 15 months old, some of that's recent, but it's pretty stale data. And, and when you're doing private company audits, it's even worse lag. And, 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 and there's lots of stuff about gap being esoteric. Well, monthly financial statements now are are starting to have the, that same issue, hmm. right? So by the time you get your monthly financial statements, I assume that you are no longer expecting to have surprises, right? Right, right. <laughs> You're supposed to, that's supposed to be in the weekly meetings now. Yeah, right. Yeah, like we're, we're we're expecting things to happen, and I don't think that was true a decade ago mm. or fifteen years ago. I think that expectation has changed. And I think, you know, the nature of CFOs and career progression is to get to the top. It takes time, right? So a lot of the folks that have emerged to that seat yeah. need to make sure that they're very, they're thinking about what's available today, staying in tune to all those things and trends. Because it's a, yeah. it's a, they've got the place that they were going moved. <laughs> yeah, right. And, the, and they've got to, yeah. and the CFOs, that I've always dealt with sometimes, you know, part of their strength, oddly enough, is that they, they kind of hold the line, right? Mm. They're resistant to change. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they do it right, they have to do that in some sort of balance, right? Mm -hmm. In a, in a, in, a, in an environment where technology is changing faster than it has historically, mm -hmm. they have to change faster too. And that's yeah. not necessarily a strength. I think the great CFOs will, will learn to adapt to that. Uh, and that's just a, a tough thing because their biggest strength is making sure the organization yeah. is safe, right? That's right. Yeah. And you change you at the right hire them. I hire them so I can sleep at night, right? right? So I want my CFO to be able to tell me this is how much cash we have. And I am 100% sure this is how much cash we have. And here's our burn rate. 
Yeah. Um, but I think your distinction that you're drawing between, uh, it's almost your level of altitude between daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annual, what are the metrics? And then how as an operator, what do you want to be looking on a daily basis? Like I want to be looking at my pipeline every single day, every single right. week. I want to be looking at my, I want to be looking at the forecast, right? On a monthly basis, you maybe you're looking at churn. So you have the full month of data of churn to be able to, to look at that and better understand um, so I think you're right. I think there's absolutely. And then, this- and, and when you get to it, like you don't really want churn, you want tickets, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Where you can stop the churn. That's right. right. Get in front so of it. I, yeah. So the, one of the big changes that I had just as an operator was like, I, you know, I always thought, took the accountant view, like, okay, I just want my financials. Yeah. So I just want like the metric is just revenue. Well, the metric yeah. wasn't revenue when we got yeah. to from monthly, it was monthly, but then when we went to weekly, yeah. we didn't care. Yeah. Like that wasn't, that wasn't helpful at all uh, anymore. Yeah. So then you had to go a level deeper. So I think that's the big challenge for CFOs is what's the level deeper. And then now the great CFOs get out of their comfort zone outside of financial make into the operating metrics that are the triggers. Uh, you know, uh, the funny thing is, is in, in, in accounting, we have this concept of prevent and detect controls and they're completely different. So the financial hmm. statements are detect controls. They've got to find the prevent numbers. <laughs> like, like, right. The window mm. that stops it while it's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if they think of it that way, maybe it, it, it makes more sense to them because you would never s- use the same detect metric for prevent control, right? Oh, so like, yeah. so financial statements are detect controls. It's already happened. How yeah. do you find the prevent stuff, and how do you get that on a weekly cadence where it's meaningful, right? So you can take an action and it doesn't go two weeks with it. What's a bad readout, right? I love that distinction, detect versus prevent. That's uh, that's great. So uh, last question for you. I know I'm putting you on the spot because I didn't pre-brief you on this. We've been talking a lot about metrics. As an operator, what is your favorite metric? What is the one that you look at either on a weekly or a monthly basis and you spend an enormous amount of time thinking about trying to optimize? Uh, employee churn. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I like- don't disagree, but yes. I think that's the number one thing that uh, every person needs to put on their radar and then yeah. back up from there, the prevent controls for that. Um, yeah. I think that is the the number one thing almost everybody in our business across the thing, like human capital is the thing that we're, we're struggling with the most as a business owners. I think everybody across the board would say that. So to me, that has to be number one on your radar for KPIs and you have to develop a way to score that and see what the health looks like there. Oh, that's great. Uh, have you seen any change in terms of attrition um, over the last year or so? I, there's been an enormous amount of layoffs. I saw one data point that said we've lost a million jobs in technology uh, between 2022 and 2023. And we had the great resignation in 2021, 2022. What have you seen broadly across your client base or for your company in particular, just as uh, have the conditions changed in terms of people leaving versus systemic issues of addressing well, I, employee engagement? The, the, I mean, the systemic issue that changed was like the VCs and the private equity yeah. moved the, move the goalpost, right? right? They moved the goalpost right. from growth to profitability. Right. And then we're still seeing the outcomes from that because that kind of trickles back down. Like the private equity companies did that immediately. The VC companies did that next. Now everybody's kind of working their way back through the system. So as as, like, I think for the mid-market and the the small businesses, I think that are kind of SaaS growth oriented businesses, we see that trickle back down, right? Yeah. 
Um, so uh, that's the macro thing, we, and that affected employees. <laughs> yeah, in a huge. But that would way. be people getting laid off versus people quitting. Correct. So have you seen sort of in that environment where there aren't as many jobs that you have you seen at your companies more attrition going down because employees are like, look, I'm going to hunker down. I'm glad I got a job and I'm going to stay here for a while. Uh, I have seen I have seen attrition go down on people yeah. leaving voluntarily, it, like about a half kind of in the, like generally you know, like 50 like percent reduction. Yeah, like a 50 oh, percent. Wow. So people that were losing 30 yeah. percent of their staff yeah. are losing 15 yeah. people losing 15 or losing seven. Yeah. Like you know, on the, if you look at it for like a like who's doing the the, the kind of turnover side. Yeah, so. that's uh, just reminds me. So I've been in technology for a while. My first job at a business school, I was at a company called Avenue Way, which became a quad a quanta, And I started in 1999. In 2001, we had the Internet dot com blow up and uh, at the agency, it was a tech enabled service. We had 500 people and the next day we had 250 and I was one yeah. of the people that was employed and I was super grateful for a job. And I just always remember feeling like, oh, gosh, I'm grateful to have a job. And there are friends of mine who got laid off in that recession who never made it back into technology because it took a long time for that to come back. And they went and they had to find another field. So I do think you're probably right that uh, there are people who are are hunkering down and going to get the work done. And, and, and then if the economy turns again, they may pop out. And I think to your point, this is the opportunity for uh, great employers to reinforce the social contract with employees, make sure that they're feeling valued, uh, make sure that they're getting, they're, they're, they're making an impact on the broader organization and that um, you're developing that relationship, especially in this hybrid world where they may be working from home is how do you build that connective tissue and make sure they feel like they're, uh, they're invested in the success of the company. That's right. That's, that's definitely a key. Well, awesome, Matthew. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. If people want to find you, they can find you on YouTube. They can find you on LinkedIn. Um, is there I'm any pretty other? Much, pretty much the tech CPA everywhere. Twitter yeah, and LinkedIn. Got, and, it, was, and, uh, it was awesome. You bought that keyword. You got it everywhere. But yeah, that's a great place to be. Uh, if someone wants a CPA in the tech space, you're the guy. Uh, that's, that's what we try to get that message out. So. <laughs> well, thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks.